So we started a, uh, a two-part series last week, and uh, the first 10 minutes of last week was me just kind of sharing some of my angst towards the evangelical church. I won't repeat that uh, this morning, but you can listen to it on the podcast if you missed it. Um, it's important to mention, though, that um, this angst has been a big part of kind of the journey I've been on, especially recently. The main idea was that there have been times, a lot of times, and a lot of times recently, where I've kind of wanted to throw the towel on my faith, um, just due to the way the church has been behaving. Um, what has kept me from doing it, honestly, is just um, the experiences I've had with God through the years, that I, I can't turn my back on that. I know too much. God has, has done things in my life through himself and through the mess, this messy uh, community we call church that... Um, I've continued to want to press on, but I've decided that if I'm going to keep doing this, I want to kind of rediscover the faith of my youth in a way. Um, I want to kind of come back to some of the basics that drew me to Jesus and his church in the first place. When I think about some of those basics, those, those early things, um, the thing we talked about last week and this week are these two primary identities we have as people of God. The first is that we've been invited to become disciples of Jesus. And two, we've been invited to become a part of a family of like-minded disciples. So last week we talked about family. And uh, this week, uh, I'd like to invite us to reimagine discipleship. First question here is, what is discipleship? It's a word that we don't really use outside of church. Growing up, discipleship was what um, the things I put in my mind, right? It was facts, uh, Bible verses, Bible studies. Not that any of those things are wrong, but they are a part of discipleship, but discipleship's way bigger than that. Uh, during the days of Jesus, there were rabbis or teachers, and a rabbi had disciples, people that were with them. Um, I'm gonna borrow uh, here from a writer named John Mark Comer, um, but he says that there were, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, there were, you had three main goals. The first was to be with your rabbi. It wasn't like today's students who go to class to go to school for eight hours and then go home. If you were invited by a rabbi to be a disciple, you basically left everything and went with that rabbi went to live with that rabbi. Everywhere he went, you went with him. There was a blessing that was said, um, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. So your rabbi's walking around in the, on dusty roads and you're behind him and he's kicking up dust and it's literally falling on you, settling on you. And that was a good thing. That was a blessing. So be with your rabbi Second was become like your rabbi. So if you are spending all of your hours with this rabbi, you naturally start becoming like your rabbi. And then the third goal is do what your rabbi did. So the natural progression for that was that at this level, someone who was a disciple of a rabbi, they would most likely at some point become a what? A rabbi. That's what was going on in these days. So now let's look at how Jesus applied this to his disciples. In this passage in Matthew, there's this word yoke, Y-O-K-E. 
Um, Jesus had not gone through the schooling to become a rabbi, but when he comes on the scene, people see him in the same light. He's a rabbi. A couple of reasons. One, he has disciples, right, who are following along with him. And two, he has a yoke. Every rabbi had a yoke. What a yoke was, what it's a set of teachings on how that rabbi interpreted scripture, interpreted the law. So if you know anything about what things were like during Jesus's day with the law, you may know that the number of laws had grown exponentially from the time 1,500 years ago when, when God gave the 10 commandments on the mountain to Moses and the Israelites. During this time when Jesus is walking the earth, there are now over 600 laws. And when Jesus says that his yoke is easy, he's contrasting this to the hard and needlessly burdensome yoke that disciples were being subjected to during this day. So keep that in mind as we continue. Um, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Dallas Willard. And um, here's what he says, it's gonna be on the screen. You'll notice that he uses the term apprentice instead of disciple as he believes that helps us uh, move past this idea of discipleship being cognitive learning into something more. He says, most fundamental of course, is to be clear on what an apprentice of Jesus is. It is to be one of those who have trusted Jesus with their whole life so far as they understand it. Because they have done so, they want to learn everything he has to teach them about life in the kingdom of God now and forever. And they are constantly with him to learn this. Disciples of Jesus are those who are with him learning to be like him. That is, they are learning to lead their life, their actual existence, as he would lead their life if he were they. This is what they are learning together in their local gatherings. And with those gatherings, a constant part of their life, they are learning how to walk with Jesus and learn from him in every aspect of their individual lives. I love that. I love that. So let's revisit those three goals for what a disciple is. It involves three basic expectations. Number one, to be with Jesus. So Jesus called men and women to be his disciples. We don't know of any other, uh, we don't know of any other rabbi who called women to do that. He called men and women to be his disciples and this started with the invitation to just be with him, right? When he, when he goes to the fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it's follow me, right? Come, be with me. As Jesus was preparing to be arrested and crucified, he gives them this last bit of teaching. It's found in John 14 to 16. And it's this, these last things he wants to remind them of, these most important things that he wants them to, to stick with them as he leaves. And one of the things found in John 15 is this, he gives them this image of a vineyard. And he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the gardener. He says, the key to a good life, not the key to heaven, not the key to appeasing God, the key to a good life is that they abide or remain in him. Because he said, if they abide, they will bear fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants them to know that they were never meant to live life on their own. We actually need help. Now, you may wonder how it's possible to 
be with Jesus when he's no longer physically walking around? The disciples are thinking that same question because he's been talking now for a little while about leaving, right? They don't like that kind of talk, but he's been, he keeps reminding them and, and now they know the time is here. So they're wondering, how do we be with Jesus when he's no longer here? Well, the very next chapter, he says that it's actually gonna be better for you when I leave. How in the world is that possible? It's actually gonna be better for you when I leave because when I leave, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you, the comforter, the advocate. And when he comes, he's gonna actually be able to be with all of you all at the same time, even when you're not together, right? Jesus in his humanity could only be in one place at one time. And he's saying, but the spirit is gonna be in you all the time. So how do we today then abide in, in knowing that we have this same spirit today, knowing that Jesus is not physically with us? How do we abide? What's it look like? Well, we can do things like read the Bible, we can pray, we can practice the disciplines like silence and solitude and Sabbath. It also though happens in very ordinary day-to-day -day moments. When we're on our morning commute, we can abide. When we're folding laundry or washing dishes or mowing the grass, we can abide. When we're in that really long line at Kroger, and we, instead of checking our phone, thinking everything has changed since five minutes ago when I checked it, we can just invite Jesus into our waiting. When we are getting ready to go into a meeting with a client or a boss, when we're getting ready to take a test, we can invite Jesus into that moment whether there's anxiety, whether there's excitement, whether there's fear, whatever it is, we can invite Jesus into those ordinary moments of our lives. So that's the first goal, be with Jesus. The second expectation we have is to become like Jesus. Now there are tons of things we could talk about here, um, but I just wanna give you kind of three ways I think that I've seen in my own life that we become like Jesus. The first is we become like Jesus as we fill our hearts and minds with God's truth. We become like Jesus as we fill our hearts and minds with God's truth. So this comes again through scripture, through music, through conversations we have with a good friend over coffee. It's also watching what we take in. Not, it could be bad things, it could also just be too much news. Um, I like this passage in Philippians 4.8, it says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So we become like Jesus as we fill our hearts and minds with God's truth. We also become like Jesus as we yield to the Holy Spirit. So we just talked about the Spirit. God's primary agenda in our lives is to conform us to the image of Christ. And he uses the Holy Spirit to do this. So the Spirit guides us into truth. The Spirit teaches us and reminds us and convicts us, nudges us to get out of our comfort zone. The Spirit does all these things, but guess what? We can yield 
to the Spirit, or we can resist every day. We can yield, we can resist, but we, come, become, we actually become like Jesus when we yield to the Spirit. Then the third thing is we become like Jesus as we allow God to use the struggles in our lives to chisel and shape us into the image of Christ. Let me say that one again. We become like Jesus as we allow God to use the struggles in our lives to chisel and shape us into the image of Christ. I will admit that I'm not as much a fan of this one. Could I have another Bible study, please, right? But listen to the, we're gonna read you a couple of passages. There are so many in the New Testament. This first one's from Romans chapter five. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then from James chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite verses. But man, how hard it is to consider it pure joy when you face trials. But he doesn't end it right there, right? It's not because we just are gluttons for punishment. It's because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, right? So that's even stronger than patience. Perseverance, and it doesn't end there. When perseverance finishes its work in us, what's it say? We can, we, the end result is that we are mature, that's a great word, and complete, great word, and then not lacking anything. How many of you would like your life to be characterized by not lacking anything? Yeah. Well, guess what? <laughs> it comes through trials more than anything else. We all have struggles. We all experience trials of many kinds. Cancer, job loss, divorce. It may be bad things that have been done to you. It may be living through the mistakes that you've made. It may just be that sometimes life just feels like a struggle. Nothing comes easy. The amazing thing I want you to hear is that God's with us during those times. God's actually with us more in those moments than at any other time. God is, you know, that prayer, the, the most basic prayer is help. God's with us, but it doesn't end there. Not only is God with us, but he does his best work during those moments. And these writers wanna encourage us that good things come in the midst of the struggle. Um, I've had a, an herb garden uh, for a few years and this spring I decided I wanted to try my hand at tomatoes. I am not a green thumb, but I decided I wanted to try it. I know nothing about gardening. So my, my neighbor across the street's Noah and Noah's an Episcopal, Episcopal priest who also just has a, a great garden. And so I decided to go, for, go to him and said, hey, I want to plant some tomatoes, tell me what to do. So he says, all right, 
go to the Cooper Young Farmer's Market, go to one of these two farms, get, get you a couple of tomato starters, and then go to Homestead Farms in Mississippi. I'm like, Mississippi? Go to Homestead Farms in Mississippi, buy a few bags of black cow. That's all he tells me. So I'm writing this down. I'm kind of, I mean, he lost me at the Mississippi piece. I'm thinking I'm probably not gonna do that, but I'm gonna keep writing down. But a few weeks later, we're coming back from Tupelo from a wedding, and I just remember, hey, Mandy, look up Homestead Farms. Turns out we're like 10 minutes away from it. So we go, we buy Black Cow, and uh, it's a great place, Homestead Farms. Um, and so then I come home, and I look at my notes, and I plant these little bitty, they're, they're about this big, these tomato starters. Any of you know what Black Cow is? It's manure. It's basically what it is. I bought bags of manure. Here's what I've learned. The best soil for growth is, guess what? Manure. How many of you have gone through some manure this year? I won't use the other word, but you know what I'm talking about. It's no fun to go through trials of many kinds. It's no fun to go through the struggle but it's in those moments that most experience change and then bear fruit. I came, we came back from three weeks out of the country and those two tomato plants, which again started like this, were over 10 times as big. These beautiful red tomatoes that are wonderful. Um, and I'm again like, I'm a gardener now. <laughs> just because I was discipled by Noah. They were really good. And it was because of that black cow, I think, more than anything else. There are a couple of authors that speak of this in um, really helpful ways. The first is this guy, Ronald Rollheiser, from his book, Sacred Fire. He says, the human soul is like a fine wine that needs to ferment. Let me just stop there. Do you ever think of your soul as a fine wine? It is. The human soul is like a fine wine that needs to ferment in various barrels as it ages and mellows. The wisdom for this is written everywhere, in nature, in scripture, in spiritual traditions, and in what is best in human science. And that wisdom is generally learned in the crucible of struggle. Growing up and maturing is precisely a process of fermentation. It does not happen easily, without effort, and without breakdown but it happens almost despite us because such is the effect of a conspiracy between God and nature to mellow the soul. And then this is from Richard Rohr in his book, Everything Belongs. Instead, we have to allow ourselves to be drawn into sacred space, into liminality. All transformation takes place there. We have to move out of business as usual and remain on the threshold lemon in Latin, where we are betwixt and between. There the old world is left behind, but we're not sure of the new one yet. That's a good space. Get there often and stay as long as you can by whatever means possible. It's the realm where God can best get at us because we are out of the way. In sacred space, the old world is about to fall apart and the new world is able to be revealed. If we don't find liminal space in our lives, we start idolizing normalcy. We end up believing it's the only reality and our lives shrivel. Some native peoples call liminal space crazy time. 
It's time where nothing looks like what we're used to, like the time after the death of someone you love. I believe that is uniquely the work of religion to lead us into crazy time. Religion should lead us into that space and deconstruct the old normal world. Much of my criticism of religion comes about when I see it, not only affirming the system of normalcy, but teaching folks how to live there comfortably. Rich Roar is sometimes hard to, hard to explain. Let me, let me tell you what this has done in me. So I found this book a little over four years ago while I was, while I was at a, silent retreat, a Catholic silent retreat. And I didn't know most of the authors in this library and I'm trying to figure out what to do for 48 hours of silence. And I, hey, I know who Richard Rohr is. And I pick up this little book, Everything Belongs. And it is one of those right place, right time books for me. I was um, making the hardest decision I've ever made to leave the church that I had started and led for a little over a decade. Um, I was burned out. I wasn't healthy. Um, I, it was a really hard time and I knew, I knew it in my head, right? That God was telling me to make a change. This, this passage is more about not simply struggle, but just change and how hard that is and how everything in us <laughs> um, pushes against making changes. But, I, I, you know, again, I'm at a silent retreat with not a lot to do. And so I just read this book in like two sittings and it just spoke to me in such powerful ways of being open to the darkness, being open to the questions, being open to the uncertainty. Again, everything in me revolts against that. But God is present in that in powerful ways. I'm not in that same amount of uncertainty today, but I'm just reminded that sometimes I need to go back to that place. I don't need to just put all these things in my life, surround myself with easy things or normal things, because what did he say? Much of my criticism of religion comes about when I see it, not only affirming the system of normalcy, but teaching folks how to live there comfortably. Mm. We all wanna be comfortable, right? But a lot of life change doesn't happen in comfort. So first goal is, you remember what it is? Be with Jesus. And then the second goal is become like Jesus. The third one is do what Jesus did. Here's where it gets good. Have you ever wondered why we would want to become Jesus's disciples? Now, when I was growing up, I would have probably answered, because I'm supposed to, like that's just the thing, but it's actually way bigger and way better. We come to Jesus in order to get from Jesus what we can get nowhere else. We come to Jesus to get from Jesus what we can get nowhere else, and we try it. We, we come to Jesus in order to become the humans that we were created to be. I believe that Jesus lived the best life that's ever been lived. And these are some of the qualities I find beautiful and compelling in his life. Love, wisdom, joy, patience, presence, passion, hope, humility, kindness, compassion, 
When I read about Jesus, I see a beautiful and compelling life and I'm reminded that he offers the same life to me today. And I want that. Be with Jesus plus become like Jesus equals the natural byproduct that we will begin to do the things that Jesus did. You think about the Sermon on the Mount, this grand ethic. He didn't just give that to these disciples and then say, hey, go figure that out, good luck. No, he wants you and I to become the kind of people who can live that ethic out, not in perfect ways, but in beautiful and compelling ways. You can have peace instead of worry. You can give away your time and money instead of hoarding it because you're worried it'll run out. You can fight for the needs of others because you believe that your father meets your needs. You can be patient when someone cuts you off in traffic. You can be engaged with issues that matter, yet not do permanent destruction to your souls. Jesus is always meeting needs, right? But then he had this rhythm of life where he'd meet needs and then he'd go away for solitude. He'd refuel and then he'd go meet needs and then he'd refuel. Here's the last question I wanna leave, leave you with this morning is what happens when we don't take Jesus up on his invitation to be with him, become like him and do the things that he did? What happens? I know you're inviting me to follow you, Jesus, but I think I'd rather just follow you on Twitter. But don't worry, I'll retweet everything you say. We, we don't have to accept Jesus' invitation to discipleship, but if we don't, we are going to accept the invitation from someone else or something else. It's just the way it works part of our human wiring. And then we have to ask, is my life better or worse because of my present discipleship? That's the question we always need to be asking. May, you've probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, um, The Cost of Discipleship. Well, I'll mention Dallas Willard, Willard one more time. He talks about the cost of non-discipleship, which he believes is actually even more dangerous. Listen to this. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is after all an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. This is why discipleship is so important. I've been reminded this week that it is so good for me to come back to these basics of my faith. They're so important yet, I think you'll agree with me, they get so overshadowed when we're experiencing all of this crazy stuff in the world and in the church. As we end, I wanna come back to Matthew 11. I'd love to invite you just to close your eyes, maybe hold out your hands in your lap, palms up, and just listen to these words of Jesus, this invitation from Jesus.
Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll, I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. <laughs>